Heavenly Father, we thank you for all we've been learning in the book of Acts. We thank you in particular for this wonderful picture of the way the gospel is powerful to save people and the way we have seen people turning and finding salvation in Christ. And so we pray that again we'll be struck by that tonight. Uh, but help us to learn what it is you would have us learn from this particular story in the book of Acts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are some moments in history that everyone knows are important the moment they happen. Uh, they're just so massive that, that people know, you know, this is something incredible. Uh, and often people sort of then remember where they were when it happened. So for people a few generations ago, uh, they always talk about where were you when JFK was assassinated? Now, if you don't know who JFK was, ask someone from a few generations ago. But uh, for me, it was when September 11 happened. Uh, I still remember exactly where I was when we were at home. Uh, we'd had a Bible study. People had left and we thought, let's just turn on the TV. And there was these pictures of planes flying into buildings. And we thought, is this like some movie? And then we turned the other channels on that channel and that channel and that channel. And uh, you just remember it. I don't know what it will be like for what it will be, that event for this. It might be, where were you when the first lockdown started for COVID? Or you're probably trying to forget that rather than remember it. But they're massive events. And so they're, they're etched in people's memories. Sometimes, though, the moments that actually change history... No one realises until much later. No one notices at the time. It's sort of obscure, but it has massive consequences. If you've studied history, you know that a famous example of this was when in 1914 there was a, an archduke from Austro-Hungaria and he was in Bosnia and some student decided to shoot him. Actually, I don't know if he was shot. He was assassinated. I, can't, I don't even know. That's how obscure. But anyway, terribly sad moment. Horrible that anything like that would happen. But who would ever realise that that was going to impact people all around the world because it was going to set the chain of events in motion that started World War I? So it's just reality. Little moments in history have massive consequences. Well, at this point in the book of Acts, the story focuses in on what really are two quite obscure moments at the time they happened. It's the conversion of two individuals, which, you know, it's always wonderful. It's always a miracle and an amazing thing when someone becomes a Christian. But these two moments... These two conversions have totally shaped history more than any other event that has happened since. Uh, even if you were an atheist, these two moments have actually shaped our world more than anything else for the last 2,000 years. Uh, so the first one was last week. Flick back to chapter 9. Remember what we looked at last week? The conversion of the Apostle Paul. Uh, it is impossible to overstate how massive that was uh, because Paul was the man who led the spread of the gospel to the world. I remember reading a book a few years ago, it was written by a non-Christian and it was just a list of the most important people in history uh, and it was a bit controversial at the time because they had Paul above Jesus at the top and their argument was, well no one would have heard about Jesus if it wasn't for Paul, so Paul was actually more instrumental in changing history, that's how massive this is. Today's story goes hand in hand with that moment uh, but it's a little more obscure because as I said before, in one sense, it's just the story of one man coming to faith. That's all it is. But if this moment hadn't happened, Paul's mission would have been a failure. It all would have come to nothing. What happened in today's passage was actually just as world changed. It's sort of the other side of the coin uh, of what happened we saw last week. So come with me to the conversion of Cornelius. Why is this conversion so important? Well, because the problem was the apostle to the world had been converted. That's the apostle Paul. Uh, but the early church still thought of it itself as Jewish. 
The early church still thought of itself as as a Jewish sect, if you like. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. So Paul could preach the gospel to the nations all he wants, but what would they do with these Gentiles? They hadn't worked this out. What would they do with these non-Jews? How were they even going to reach Gentiles if they couldn't even go into their houses? They couldn't even eat with them. How do you reach people you can't go into the house of and you can't eat food with? And if they became Christians, what were they going to do to include them? Uh, did they have to become Jews? We don't get just how big an issue this is. It's interesting as you read your New Testament, just how much of nearly every letter of the New Testament is taken up with this problem. You see, unless you are from a Jewish background, I'm not aware of anyone at 630 Church who is from a Jewish background, but we are only Christians because this moment happened. That's how important this is. Uh, so come with me into it. As I say, we're actually picking it up in chapter 9, verse 32. So go back to chapter 9, verse 32, because having focused on Paul coming to know Jesus, we switch to the other main character, other than Jesus and the Holy Spirit, in the book of Acts, which is back to Peter. So I've got Peter in Joppa from verse 32. So by this time, Peter's left Jerusalem. Uh, he's travelling around the countryside, preaching the gospel. He's doing amazing things. He's healing people. There's a couple of stories of the amazing things he was doing in those verses. But he's ended up in this place called Joppa. Now, just by the way, you can still go to Joppa today. Joppa is the little town on the coast that Tel Aviv has built up around in, in modern Israel. And you can actually still go to the supposed house of Simon the Tanner, where this happened. I say supposed because who knows 2,000 years later if it's actually his house, but that doesn't stop them making some money out of it. But as I say, Peter is in Joppa. Does that make you think at all? Does that bring anything into your mind when you hear Peter is in Joppa, the town of Joppa? If you know your Bible... Do you start to think, hang on, I've heard of Joppa before, and who do you associate with Joppa? Jonah. So if you know the Old Testament, Jonah, God told him, I want you to go and preach my word, the message of grace, to the Ninevites. And what did Jonah do? He runs to Joppa to get on a boat to go the other direction, to avoid sharing God's word with Gentiles. So there's a lovely irony in this, because this is about God overcoming Peter's reluctance to share the gospel with Gentiles, and here it is happening in Joppa. So we've got Peter doing God's work among the Jews only in Joppa. Then we switch scenes. And this story is really beautifully written for us. It's just wonderful. It switches between these two characters and then brings them together at the end. So next we meet Cornelius the God-fearer. This is chapter 10 that we read before. So look with me at chapter 10 verses 1 and 2. It says there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. He was a devout man that feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. So straight away you see Cornelius is a very important man. Uh, he's a commander of at least a hundred other soldiers. But more than that, you see this interesting fact, he was a God-fearer. That meant he was impressed by the God of the Jews. So he had turned his back on pagan idols. He knew that's all rubbish. They're a waste of time. He knows there's only one true God, and that is the God of the Old Testament. That's who he prayed to, but he hadn't yet converted. Uh, he was a seeker, if you like. He'd started to listen to the Old Testament. He'd started to live his life according to some of the rules of the Old Testament, but he hadn't taken that step of becoming a Jew. At its heart, he hadn't been circumcised. And that meant he couldn't be a part of Jewish worship. He couldn't go to the temple, couldn't go to the synagogue. It's really important to understand this. Yes, Cornelius is friendly to God already, but he's still on the outside. He's still excluded. He's still a Gentile. So here's Cornelius praying. And at that moment, an angel comes to him. 
and tells him, you should send some men to Joppa and get them to bring this guy you've never met called Simon Peter back. He's got something to tell you. And so Cornelius does what he's told. But now the story switches back to Peter. Come back with me to chapter 10, verse 9, to Peter's vision. Because while they're on their way, God is getting Peter ready to meet Cornelius. So Peter goes up onto his roof to pray. It's really lovely, this story. Here is God appearing to Cornelius while he prays. Here's Peter praying and God appears to him to get him ready to bring the two together. And this is what God does. Look from verse 11. Peter saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. Then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, now Peter is totally shocked that, that God would say this to him. Now, why is he so shocked, do you think? It's not just that God wants him to kill things. God has no problem with killing animals and eating them. It's because every animal on earth was on this sheet. And what was part of the Old Testament law that Peter had grown up with and following? It, it was forbidden to eat many of these animals. There would have been a pig on that sheet. He wasn't allowed to eat pork. There would have been lizards on that. There would have been shellfish. So Peter says, look at verse 14. No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything common and ritually unclean. I really like this moment. He's already had done this with Jesus before. You know, he'd often argue with Jesus, Peter. Now he's arguing with God the Father. He's just keeping up with his uh, normal habits. But we have to understand, be be, go lightly on Peter. You have to understand how ingrained this was. It was about being holy. Part of the Old Testament law said, be different to the nations. I want you to be distinct. And one of the ways you had to be distinct was you don't eat all the things they do. You, you're different to them. And to eat those things was to disobey God's law, was to, to make yourself unclean or common, as he put it. But more than that, what had happened is around God's law, the Jews had created other laws so you didn't even get close to breaking these laws. And, and so, for instance, you wouldn't, weren't to go into the house of a Gentile because they might have eaten these things. They might have cooked them there. So you don't even want to get close to that. So Peter just doesn't want to do this. But God rebukes him. Look at verse 15. What God has made clean, you must not call common. I think that's a great line. Uh, God is saying, seriously, you're going to argue with me? Didn't you learn your lesson arguing with my son? Now you're arguing with me as well, and you're arguing about the laws I gave you in the first place? Don't argue with me, Peter. I'm saying these rules no longer apply. Now, if you think about it, Peter should have known this already. Peter was there back in Mark chapter 7. You can read it later on. But in Mark chapter 7, Peter was there when Jesus said, it is not the food that goes into your house, that, into your mouth, that makes you unclean. It's what is it that makes you unclean? What does Jesus say? It's the things that come out of your heart. It's the things that come out of your heart that make you unclean. It's our sin. It's our malice. It's our anger. It's our lust. It's our envy. It's our greed. Jesus already told him, it doesn't matter what food you eat, guys. Peter should have known this already. But it was so ingrained in Peter, he just couldn't contemplate it. In fact, it tells us God had to repeat the whole thing three times for Peter. And so while Peter is still there wondering what it's all about, Cornelius's men arrive and that brings us to the climax of our story, the conversion of Cornelius from verse 23. So when they come, Peter goes with them, he goes to Cornelius's house and Cornelius has invited everyone he knows, all his relatives, all his close friends. I just love this part. 
Sometimes the best evangelists aren't converted yet. This is really amazing. I've seen this so many times here at St. George North, where, where you, one of you invites a friend along to the life course or to church and that sort of thing, but then next week they've brought five other friends along with them. They're not even a Christian yet, but they're sort of like, this is important. This is worth knowing about. Of course, I've got to share it. And that's what happens here with Cornelius. God has told Cornelius, Peter is going to offer you salvation. So Cornelius says, well, clearly I'll bring my friends and relatives along. They need to hear about this too. I don't know about you, but I find that a little bit of a rebuke when people who don't know the gospel yet are quicker to share it than me, who's meant to know just how wonderful Jesus is. But anyway, Peter walks in, Cornelius falls at his feet and tries to worship him. Uh, But Peter is horrified by that. Look at verse 26. He says, stand up. I'm only a man myself. Peter does not want Cornelius giving him the praise, giving him the glory. He wants it to go to Jesus, which I think is another little nugget of gold in this story. I love seeing just these little things, not the main point, but just little things to take out. How sad it is that bishops and popes who claim to walk in the footsteps of Peter, how sad is it that they let people bow down to them and, you know, kiss the ring on their finger or or, or kiss their feet. Peter would be absolutely horrified by some of the things people who claim to walk in his footsteps have done in the life of the church. But back to the story. Peter's really nervous. He says, I shouldn't be here. I'm I'm not meant to come into the home of a Gentile. I'm only here because God has told me I should be. But Cornelius tells him about his dream and he says, I want everyone to hear what you've got to say, Peter. And so Peter does what God has called him there to do. He preaches the gospel. Now, I made a mistake in our Bible readings and I meant to change it and I never got around to it. And even when I recognized it this morning, I forgot to tell Troy to, to change it for tonight. I wanted us to read verse chapter 10, verse 34 to the end, because it's the main part uh, of what's said here. But we're not going to read it now. You can read it later on. Uh, but what you see here is Peter preaching the gospel. This is another one of those wonderful little so- sermons in, in the book of Acts. Uh, and what does he do? He tells them about Jesus. He tells them about the life of Jesus. He tells them about what Jesus taught. He tells them about what Jesus did. But then he tells them about the death of Jesus. And he particularly, he says it in a funny way. He says how Jesus was hung on a tree. Now, I think we only get the Reader's Digest of these sermons. So just in case you're thinking, why can't Phil's sermons be as short as these? They're like the abbreviated version, you you know. Uh, And I think he would have expanded that because why would you say Jesus was hung on a tree? Because that's a phrase from the Old Testament that says he was cursed because it was to be cursed, to be hung on a tree. I think at that point he's explaining the death of Jesus, that Jesus became sin for us. But then he tells them how Jesus didn't stay dead, that he rose from the grave. And again, he tells them every person now needs to hear that Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. This is just another of those great gospel sermons in Acts. But I just want to point out a couple of key verses that capture the essence of this story and why this story has been recorded for us. So look with me at at verses 34 and 35. Go to those verses. So 34, they weren't read for us before, so you need to see them. So I hope you've got your Bible. Uh, It says, Then Peter began to speak. Now I really understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation the person who fears him and does righteousness is acceptable to him. I want you to please look really, really closely at these verses because people get this wrong and it leads to all sorts of errors. 
Because some people look at verse 35 there and they say, oh, so anyone who fears God, whatever that looks like, and and does good things is acceptable to God. And they go from there and they say that this is saying you don't need to know Jesus to be saved. As long as you fear God, however you conceive him to be, and as long as you try to live a good life, you're okay. Now, Peter cannot be saying that here, can he? Because that would contradict everything Jesus said and contradict everything the rest of the Bible says. More than that, if it was true, why did he bother coming to see Cornelius? He didn't come to see Cornelius to say, Cornelius, you already fear God and do good things, keep it up. He didn't, did it? He? He's here to tell him, you need to come to know Jesus. So Peter is not saying that and he makes it really clear at the other key verse, verse 43, go there. It says, all the prophets testify about him, that's Jesus, that through his name... Everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. How do you become acceptable to God and receive his forgiveness? By believing in Jesus. That's how. So what is verse 35 saying? It's saying that is how you show that you fear the Lord. A person who fears the Lord will put their faith in Jesus. And then they will do righteousness as someone who follows Jesus. And the point of verses 34 and 35 is not to suggest you can be acceptable to God other than through faith in Christ. The key words there, look at it again, the key words are God doesn't show favoritism and but in every nation. See, the key point is that people from every nation can now come to know Jesus. People in every nation can find God's forgiveness. The the key point is God does not favor one race over another. He does not favour one nation over another. The point Peter had come to understand is that the gospel is for every person on earth. That's the key point. And so every person on earth needs to hear about Jesus and every person on earth can find forgiveness in Jesus. And, and this is so important, because of that, there should be no other stumbling blocks put in people's way to stop them hearing about Jesus. There should be no other barriers put in people's way to stop them hearing about Jesus. Which leads to the beautiful climax of the story. Peter is still speaking and something amazing happens. Look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. The circumcised believers, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter were astounded because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speaking in other languages and declaring the greatness of God. It's just a wonderful moment. These Gentiles became Christians. While Peter is still explaining the gospel, they believe in Jesus and so they receive the Holy Spirit. It's just an incredible moment. So the gospel had gone to the Jews, of course it had, because Jesus was first for the Jews. He's the Jews' Messiah. A couple of weeks ago, we saw it go to the Jewish Jews' cousins, if you like, their half-brothers, the Samaritans. But now, the people who were far away, the people who had no hope, The Gentiles, people like most of us, I assume, were being saved. It's amazing when any person comes to know Jesus, but this is an incredible moment because this is the breaking of the wall of the dam. This this is the moment where now the gospel can go out and the waters can flood out. See, now pause at this point. Think about this. Why did God do it this way, do you think? Paul got converted last week, why didn't it just say, and he started telling people about Jesus and lots of Gentiles became Christians and it all got underway. Why did God contrive things to make sure that Peter was there when this happened? 
And why did he contrive things to make sure that there was this really obvious coming down of the Holy Spirit and, and that that was shown in really obvious ways? Why do you think that is? Well, it's exactly the same thing that happened when the first Jews were converted at Pentecost. And then we saw it again a couple of weeks ago that Peter had to be there, remember, and they had to have an obvious show of the Holy Spirit when the first Samaritans got converted. It's to prove this is a work of God. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? when he was teaching him, he said, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. And it's almost like Peter had to be there to show the gospel is open for the Jews, first of all. Then he had to be there to say the gospel is open to the Samaritans. And here he's there to say the gospel is open to the Gentiles. See, God is doing this to show all the other first Christians, the Jewish Christians, this is legit. I am saving Gentiles, so get on board. Get on board or get out of the way. That's what God is saying here. You cannot argue with this. And Peter got the message. I love his response. Look at verse 46. It says, then Peter responded, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I love that because Peter is saying, how can we withhold the symbol when they've got the reality? Because that's all baptism is. We, wonderful moment. Come to church twice next Sunday. Come at 10.30. We're baptising someone who's recently become a Christian on Easter Sunday. How, you can't get better than that, getting baptised on Easter Sunday, can you? you know. But come and see it. Come and support them. Peter is saying here, how can we withhold the symbol? Because that's what it is. Putting the water on is a symbol of the spiritual reality that's happened when someone becomes a believer. And so here he's saying, how can we not accept these people as brothers and sisters in Christ when God clearly has accepted them as his children. But the question remains, and this is the last part we're looking at, chapter 11, verses 1 to 18, go there now, uh, would others accept them? Have you ever had that experience where you're on a real high and someone just comes and bursts your bubble? Because you're excited and they're either ho-hum or the opposite, whatever that is. I was playing golf a little while back and the guy I was playing with got a hole in one. And it was quite incredible. For those who love golf, it just went and went straight in the hole. Didn't even bounce, straight in the hole. We were jumping around like, you know, crazy people. He rang his wife. (laughs) She didn't even care. (laughs) What time are you getting home? It's amazing how even here, just the mention of golf made some of your eyes glaze over. But anyway, uh, you didn't even feign interest. But there is one last little moment in today's story that even is even worse than that. We didn't read it before, so flip to the start of chapter 11. Uh, Peter comes back to Jerusalem. He's so excited. He would have been jumping and leaping and prancing around. But how do the other Christians respond? Look at chapter 11, verse 2. When Peter went up to Jerusalem, those who stressed circumcision, the Jewish believers, argued with him saying, you visited uncircumcised men and ate with them? I think that might just be one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. It's so sad and so deflating, isn't it? God is at work, people are being saved, and the people who are already Christians respond like that. Can I tell you, every, this is a moment of confession, every evangelist and every church minister has suffered that deflation over the years. Every church minister has suffered that deflation. When you share the joy of seeing God at work in people's lives and the people who are already meant to know Jesus don't see it, don't get excited by it and sometimes even oppose it and grumble about it. I remember being at a parish council meeting, not at our church. We have wonderful parish councillors. 
Lucy, Braden, Rob, you do a great job. But before I went to Moore College, I was on the parish council. I was like the token young person back then. You might struggle to believe that. But anyway, uh, and the minister was sharing about this growth we'd had in our evening congregation. It was a tiny little church where I became a Christian. uh, And the evening congregation had grown from about 20 to about 70. You know, it was quite incredible. And he was sharing the joy of this at the parish council meeting. And then one of the old guard, one of the church wardens, just immediately said, well, I hope they don't want to make any changes. And you could just see the poor minister just crumple and just deflate. The air went out. See, when the Christians don't get it, it's the most discouraging thing, but it doesn't knock a grunt out of Peter. Look here. He tells them what happened. He goes through the whole story again, just for your reading. Uh, He tells them it all, and slowly they get it. Look at verse 18. When they heard this, they became silent. Then they glorified God saying, so God has granted repentance resulting in life, even to the Gentiles. Isn't that wonderful? Even the grumblers, even the complainers could not doubt such an obvious work of God. Well, there is that second great moment in history for us. It's a great story. I hope you just enjoyed listening to it, but what are we to take away from it? There are some passages in scripture where the applications are obvious, go and do this, go and think this, that sort of thing. This one's more subtle. And I think the main response for us today from this passage is really simple. Praise God that you have been included. There's the main point. Praise God that you have been included. Praise God that he knocked down those barriers so that the gospel could go to all nations and even come to us who are gathered here. Praise God he doesn't show favoritism. Praise God that people like us from every nation on earth can find his forgiveness and grace in Christ Jesus. Praise God that those first Jewish Christians were able to set aside their culture and set aside the things that were dear to them and break past the barriers and share the gospel with people like us. That is the first response we should have to this passage. Just praise God. Praise God. But then secondly and finally, make sure that we welcome people like God welcomes people. Make sure that we do not show favoritism. See, the second conclusion I want to draw out is from the response of those Jewish Christians and perhaps from that old church warden 20-something years ago, that response of, well, they're welcome to join us if they become like us. Because that response has actually been mirrored right throughout all of history. Uh, And it looks like this. Yes, Jesus is the Lord. Yes, we're great supporters of evangelism, especially we love sending people to evangelize people over in other countries. We love supporting mission. Yes, we'll welcome people into our church but only if they will just change and become like us. Then we'll welcome them. When you understand the gospel, when you understand that every person from every culture and every age and every whatever else divides humanity, every person needs to find Jesus to be saved. When you understand the fact that Jesus commands us to share his gospel with the world, with every nature, with every person, when we understand that, we realise that the only thing that is unchanging and non-negotiable is the gospel. It's the word of God. That's what stays the same, but everything else is negotiable. See, too often as Christians, we demand that people fit in with our culture and then we'll tell you about Jesus. Come in here and we'll tell you about Jesus. Come in here to church, become like us, and then we'll share Jesus with you. Rather than being willing to go out there, change ourselves and make them feel comfortable to win them for Christ. See, that's why the Apostle Paul went on to write, I will become all things for all men so that I might win some of them for Christ. You see, if I'm meeting with Jews, he says, I'll take pork off the menu. 
don't care. If I'm meeting with Gentiles, I'll take a double serve of pork. I don't care. If I'm going to Melbourne, I'll pretend to be interested in AFL. You know, I'm talking massive sacrifices here. You know, <laughs> if, if they wear head coverings, I'll put a scarf on. You, you know, whatever it takes. What I like, who cares? What do I care what I like? What do I care about my rights? What do I care about what I want? That's irrelevant. I will put all my own interests aside so that I can reach other people with the gospel. See, the truly faithful Christian and the truly faithful church will do anything to win people for Christ, except change the message, changing the word of God. Everything else is negotiable. That is what we have to be. People who will give up what we want, give up what we like, give up our rights, give up our preferences to just get out there and win others for Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this wonderful moment when the gospel first went to people like us, people who were not Jews, people who were not of your Old Testament promises. Father, we thank you that the floodgates opened so that the gospel could come even here so that we could be saved. And so, Father, we thank you that you do not show favoritism, that people from every nation, tribe and tongue can find forgiveness in Christ. And so we pray that we would knock down any barriers in order to share the good news with people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.